I don't know if you've ever had that, you know, cross your mind. Maybe it's when you're driving and you think you saw something. Maybe um, you're a little bit tired and you're not sure if that's really what was in front of you. Maybe it was a commercial, like something that was funny or creative, or you're like, I have no idea what that was advertising. And so like you use your technology devices to be able to go back and watch it again because you want to know what was it that I just saw. Or maybe some of you on your social media, you're slow scrollers, so you want to read everything, but some of you are not that way. You're fast. And so you're like going as quickly as you can, but maybe there's like a little video or a picture or a word or who posted it. So that actually stops you and you want to go back to look and see what's there because you're interested. Something caught your eye and you want to see what it was. Uh, A couple weeks ago when my family was coming back from vacation, we were alerted to an accident on the interstate. And so we rerouted ourselves and went off the interstate on some of the back roads. And as we passed this town called Casey, Illinois, I saw a sign and we drove past and I looked at my wife about the time that she kind of laughed. It said the world's largest wind chime. (laughs) And so it's like, hey, come see the world's long, you know, largest wind chime. Well, we were in a hurry to get to our hotel, so we didn't stop or anything like that. But later, I got on the internet because I'm interested in this world's largest wind chime. And sure enough, there it is in Casey, Illinois. It is 55 feet high. All right, so that is the world's largest wind chime. Well, when I took time to look again at this town, they also boast some other things that are the world's largest. Like if you're into golfing, they have the world's largest golf tee, which is 30 feet high. They have the world's largest wooden shoes, which are 11 and a half feet long by five and a half feet high. There's the world's largest mailbox. It is 76 feet high, and you can climb inside if you want to do that. They have the world's largest rocking chair now at 56 feet, the world's largest pitchfork, which is 60 feet long, along with a few other things. And so sometimes there are those signs that just kind of make you go, did I really just see that? And you stop and look again. Maybe when you're playing a new game, you pull out the instructions and you look over it, but then like you don't remember what you're supposed to do when a seven is rolled or when you hit a certain space. So you get those instructions out again so that way you can know what to do. You want to make sure you've got it right. Or when you put things together. Like it comes out of a box. I get there are different types of people here. And so like just for instance, like some of you are like, I can figure this out. Like there's a picture on the front of the box. I know what it's supposed to look like. Even if there's a couple extra pieces at the end, I can do this. So how many of you out there are people that I don't need instructions. I get something out and I put it together myself. Raise your hand. Who is that way? All right. Yep. There's always a handful. How many of you are people that I read through the instructions once and I'm good. Then I can do it. Who's that kind of person? You're the instruction one kind. Okay. But then we've also got those of you that read through the instructions. And then as you're doing it, you go step by step again to make sure you got it right. Who is that? Okay. Very good. All right. I have to tell you that is me too because I do not want to mess this thing up. I don't want to go back and have to do it again. But we do often do that in certain things of our lives. We look again. We want to make sure either what we saw really is what was there or we want to make sure that we have it right. And so last week, as we started this series, we saw how the Jewish people, they had it wrong. They were expecting this military hero to be their Messiah, but they expected the wrong kind of Savior. And so they needed to look again. With our events for today that we're looking at, we want to look again and make sure, wow, is that really what I just saw? Because that's probably not what most of us would naturally expect in a Savior, in a Messiah. 
And so last week, we looked at what would have happened on Sunday, that triumphal entry. As Jesus is coming in, fulfilling prophecy, he is the true Savior. It's written about in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the next couple days, in that week that Jesus lived, it's only recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And we're barely going to touch on these things, although again, if you want to watch the videos that are coming out this week, that will help you dive deeper into some of these things. But that happened on Sunday. On Monday, Jesus cleanses the temple. And again, reading different texts, you can see that he made a whip. He drives out those who are buying and selling. He overturns the tables because, man, the people are not doing what the temple was created for. They are defiling the connection that God has made with people. And so Jesus comes in with fire. Like, he is angry. He's not maybe just that gentle Jesus that maybe you thought about when you were four or five years old. Like, Jesus is passionate about what's going on here, about getting it right. And also on Monday... There's this story that, again, you're like, really? What does that have to do with anything? Jesus curses a fig tree. Like, he goes up to it, and he goes to look, and it doesn't have the figs. And so he curses it, and the next day, which would have been Tuesday, they come back, and the disciples find that it is completely withered. And some people are like, well, why did Jesus do that? Was he just hungry, and it didn't have the meal, so he's angry? Except it's much deeper than that. It's an illustration of what happens when you don't produce fruit, when you're not living for God. Even when you have the appearance of living for God, that plant had the appearance that it was time for figs to be there, and yet they weren't there. And so this is all happening Monday into Tuesday. And if we're talking about Tuesday, it was a big teaching day for Jesus. In fact, as he's there, again, the Pharisees, they do not like him. They are trying to trap him. And so they ask him, well, what authority are you teaching by? What authority are you doing all these miracles by? And so he asks them a question. Okay, let me ask you this. John's baptism, where's it from? And they all start talking. They're like, oh, what do we answer? Like, if we say from heaven, then he's going to ask, well, why don't you just believe that then? If we say from men, then all these people around us are going to rebel. And so what do we do? And so they basically said, we don't know. And Jesus says, then I'm not going to answer. But then he starts telling some stories that are aimed right at the Pharisees, and they know it. He tells a story about two sons, which one of them actually does the job when the father says, go and work, and one of them goes to work when the other one doesn't. He tells a story about tenants of a vineyard that end up killing the son of the vineyard owner because they want to keep the vineyard for themselves. He tells a story about a wedding banquet and describes who will be allowed in, and then even some people who are kicked out of the wedding banquet for not having the right clothing and all this. And all of that is aimed at the Pharisees. You guys have it wrong. You've been misleading people. And then he goes into more teachings and interactions. So sometimes they're trying to ask questions again, trying to trap him. So they're like, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, show me that coin. Yep. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, then a Sadducee who doesn't even believe in the resurrection of an afterlife, those kind of things, um, he asks a question. Hey, there's this husband and wife and the husband dies. And so the wife, according to Old Testament law, marries one of his brothers, but then he dies and another brother and another brother. And she's never able to have a child. So who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? And Jesus, he knows what to do. He knows that he's being, he's being trapped and he answers them in such a way that they're like, wow. They ask him, okay, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, you need to love God with all your heart and love others as well. And they're trying to figure out what to do to trap him. And then Jesus even asks him, okay, I've got a question for you. Whose son is the Christ? And they're like, oh, well, Scripture tells us it's going to be David. You know what? David is the father of the Christ. He says, but if you look at Scripture, David actually calls him Lord. So how can he be the son and the father at the same time? 
And it tells us in the text that no one dared ask him any more questions. Like they couldn't trap him. It's all the anger that they had, they were trying to do it. They could not do it. And then right after that, still on that Tuesday, we read about these woes that Jesus pronounces towards the Pharisees because of how they're living. Man, because of the way that they are misdirecting so many people. But after all this public teaching and even rebuke, he pulls his disciples aside and he speaks into them. And in Matthew chapter 24, there's this passage that talks about the end of the age, the sign of the end of the age that we refer to it. But actually, a lot of that has already taken place. If you study history in 70 AD, a lot of the things that we think someday will happen have already happened. And so that's a lot of what Matthew chapter 24 is. And Jesus is telling his disciples, this is going to come. But then he does talk about the second coming. He does talk about what is to come, and he tells these different stories, but the point of every one of his stories is you need to be ready. You need to be ready when I return. And so Tuesday is filled with these public and these private discussions and teachings. And then we have Wednesday, and we don't really have anything recorded for us. And we have Thursday, the day that Jesus is arrested, and he's put on trial Okay, not the way that they were supposed to do it, but these chief priests were angry and just wanted to get him uh, convicted. And so that's what happens. And then on Friday, Jesus was crucified and placed in a tomb. But on Thursday, on Thursday before he was arrested, there was that one event that takes place that Matt even referred to it already, that Last Supper. And you can piece together kind of from all four Gospels what would have taken place. And so at the beginning, Jesus sits down with his 12 disciples and he says that he desires to eat this meal with him before he suffers. Again, remembering the Passover meal and knowing that he is about to be the Passover lamb. That was his purpose. He is coming to be that for all of us. And then in the midst of all that, the disciples, they begin an argument about who's the greatest. Like Luke chapter 22, verse 24 records it. It just says, also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And this is not even the first time they've had this argument. They did about a year ago, and Jesus pulls a child aside and says, he who has the faith of a child, that's the greatest. And then again, about a week ago, James's and John's mom comes up to Jesus. Hey, can my son sit next to you? Can they have the places of authority? And so that begins this argument over who is the greatest. And now we have this time. And all three of these happen right after Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And I can only imagine Jesus sitting there going, I get that you've sacrificed three years of your life, but understand it's not going to be in vain. There will be a reward that is coming, but it's still in the future. And so for now, you are called to still continue on sacrificing and serving. Now, it doesn't tell us for sure, but I would tell you probably the reason for this argument is who gets to sit next to Jesus at this meal. Like I think there are, they're trying to figure out who is of order of importance, who gets to sit closest to Jesus as we're doing this. And in the midst of that, they have forgotten Jesus' teaching, which is recorded for us in Luke 14, verses 8 through 11. Like, just listen to these words. It says, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, Give this man your seat. And then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place, and then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. It says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I seriously think that in this moment, the disciples, they again forgot this teaching. And so Jesus in Luke addresses it by talking about the importance of serving, but then he takes a moment to give a visual response. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13, right? John chapter 13 is the text that we're going to look at the most. This event is only recorded in the book of John. Like John, he writes his book later than all the others, 20 to 40 years later. And so sometimes there are things that he wants to focus on that didn't get written about before. And so at the beginning of chapter 13, he says that Jesus knows that the time has come for him to go back to his father. Like even up to his last breath, he's going to continue loving his disciples. And then he explains in John 13 that Judas has already been prompted to betray Jesus. But then John doesn't tell us about the argument that we just read in about Luke, um, but we get to read the response that happens. And so starting in verse 3, we'll read verses 3 through 5 of chapter 13. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And so we have Jesus in this moment taking off his outer garment so it doesn't get wet, it doesn't get dirty, and then he grabs the towel, and he wraps it around himself, this emblem of what it was to be a servant. And for the, for the moment, the disciples are actually appalled at this. Like, this is the job for the lowliest servant, the lowliest slave in the house. And it often would have been done as soon as someone enters. But now, like, here it is amongst the meal, and Jesus is doing this. Why did they wash their feet? Well, you understand things were much different. They didn't have cars, and so they're walking everywhere in their sandals. The, the, the roads are made of dirt, and so things would have been really messy, as well as... The eating situation is quite a bit different. Like we often think, oh, they're eating at a table, you know, but it wasn't with chairs as we do. They would have sat at a U-shaped table, all right? They wouldn't have sat in chairs all on one side for a pretty picture that we often see, you know, represented. That's not the way that it was. In fact, this table was lower to the ground, probably six to eight inches off the ground. And then there would have been a pillow right up next to it that everyone would have leaned with your left arm on the pillow. And so you use your right arm to be able to eat any kind of food. And what happens is your head is nearest to the table and your feet would be back behind the person who is sitting next to you. And so even as you're talking about this idea of washing feet, it's so that you're not getting someone else messy, you're not getting the materials dirty, all of these things. But this picture is different than what we sometimes view. But understand that that is what's going on. And Jesus is choosing to wash his disciples' feet, doing something that probably one of those 12 should have done to him. So we keep reading in verses 6 through 11. It says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Well, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. 
And so in this moment, Jesus now comes to Peter to be able to wash his feet, and he objects. In fact, he kind of goes overboard. We get to read that sentence, you will never wash my feet. If you looked at the Greek, he basically says, you will never wash my feet forever. There is double emphasis, this idea of this is not something that you are going to do. But Jesus says it's necessary. Washing shows that you are with me. And so then you get the pendulum swing to where he's like, okay, well then wash all of me. Like he kind of gets points for like enthusiasm. Hey, I'm glad you want to be all in on this. But like he doesn't understand. In fact, it tells us you don't understand all of this at this moment. But there is a symbolic meaning of a deeper cleaning. It's not just body parts here. And at the end, he even says that he knows that one of them is about to betray him. This isn't a surprise. And so then we get to the end of this text, reading verses 12 through 17. We, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The lesson's really simple here. You're called to serve. A student is not greater than the teacher. And if Jesus is our teacher, then we are called to serve. We're called to do it. Now, I get we're looking specifically at this idea of foot washing, and foot washing doesn't necessarily have the same cultural significance that it did back then for us today. I mean, sometimes there's still foot washing ceremonies. Maybe you still do it to show someone that you're serving them. But today we have shoes, we have concrete roads, we have tables and chairs, and so it doesn't have the exact same meaning, but that wasn't the point. The point is that it's not just a one-time activity. Jesus is calling us to have an attitude of servanthood to do these lowly tasks that other people may want to avoid, all with the purpose of caring for other people. And so even if we kind of take a step back and look at everything that John wrote, like he is showing that Jesus is in control this entire time. It's not an accident. This death is not a surprise. He is fulfilling the will of God. And so after Jesus washes feet, he then predicts the betrayal even more clearly. He identifies Judas as the one who's going to do that, and Judas then leaves. He then takes the elements of the bread and the wine and gives thanks that we read about a while ago. And then he even says, I will not drink of this anymore. I will not take this meal again with you until we are anew in the kingdom of God. And then the disciples, they sing, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives where he prays. And our text here, the disciples, like they are right next to Jesus and they're arguing over who is best. And if they took that second look at their Savior, maybe they'd be like, what did we just see? Is he really serving us? Like he's not just ruling, even though he has the right to do so. And we could sit here and go, okay, I get that Jesus wants us to serve. But sometimes it's really hard. Like sometimes I just really don't want to. Jesus, do I really need to serve? And I can almost see Jesus just taking a look directly at you and just saying, I just washed Judas' feet. It's not just when it's easy. And so Jesus displays servanthood in the upper room, and then he goes and prays and says the words, your will be done. And then he heads to the cross on Friday. 
You know what, a lot of times when people look at John 13, the application is the lesson that Jesus taught, that we are to go and serve others. I remember a few years ago, I preached a sermon called Trading the Title for a Towel, and we gave out little white towels with the SR logo that was the whole purpose of I am going to be a servant. Because you know what, true authority, true authority is not given with a title. It's not given with a label. Oh, sure, you may have some authority with a title, but do people really follow after you? The best leadership is servant leadership. So I want you to think about the areas where you are a leader, whether you're the top leader or a leader in the middle of the organization, it doesn't matter. Do those that you lead, do they know that you care about them? Like, would you do almost anything for them? Do you relate to them? Do you connect with them? Do you serve them? And maybe that's at your job. Maybe that's on a team. Maybe that's in your family. Maybe that's at here, here at church. Like any connection you have, could I ask you, do you lead by ruling or by serving? There's a lot of people in our society that feel like, well, you should follow me because I say so or because you're under me or because I deserve it. And that may get things done in the moment if people are forced to do their jobs. But I'll tell you, those people who are doing it may not do it with their whole hearts. And those people may also look for the opportunity to go find a different leader to follow, one who cares for them, who comes alongside of them, who works with them. There's a book by John Ortberg called The Life You've Always Wanted, and he has a chapter about servanthood, and he refers to how we all have something called a Messiah complex, in which we really want to live for ourselves, how pride wants to direct our decisions. And at the very end of that chapter, he says this, God's great holy joke about the Messiah complex is this, that every human being who has ever lived has suffered from it, except one, and he was the Messiah. We are called to serve, to not allow pride to be that which drives us. And just even as a side note, I would tell you, if you're not serving somewhere within the church, I can't encourage you enough to do that. And it's not just because, quote, the church needs it. Can I tell you, when you serve, you connect to Jesus and you connect to other people in a way that if you're not serving, you can't understand. And I even tell you about this time because next week is Easter. Like There are going to be people coming in to either reconnect or hear the message of Jesus for the very first time. And is there a way that, man, I can help serve because I want people to know the life-giving message of Jesus. And so we have four services. Three of them have kids' activities. Maybe today you're like, Sarah, can I help? Is there a way that you need help in that? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm still scared by kids. Just not going to lie, okay? And so maybe there's another area of ministry that you're like, I want to be able to serve and help because I want people to know Jesus. You know, I could help open a door. I can smile. You know what? I can be a behind-the-scenes kind of person and making sure details are taken care of. But I would challenge you to encourage, like, you find a place. Ask someone, how can I get plugged in? Because even telling you that, if I were to come back here, I would tell you that Jesus' kingdom is not for power seekers but for servants. And all of it is for the purpose of showing love to other people that ultimately, yes, they know that we love them, but more than that, they would know that God loves them. Now, even as true as all of that is, that's not the main takeaway that I want you to have today. Now, if you've been challenged in any way, like, hey, I need to serve in some way, uh, you better listen to God, okay? So make sure you're doing that. You know, leave here listening. Spirit, help me to live with this attitude. Here's what I really want you to do. 
I want to take a look at the Messiah, at the Savior. Kind of like at the beginning, we talked about those things that we stop and look again. Do I really have this right? And I want us to do that with Jesus. Because here is the perfect Messiah who could have used his authority to force people to do certain things. Who could have forced people, you have to follow me. Instead, he gives them a choice. If you are a Christian, the God that you follow, the God that you worship is one who serves. Like, yes, he is still king. He is not a genie like we talked about last week, but he chooses to love and serve. In fact, John 13, he's not disguising who God is. He's revealing him. Jesus knew he was from God and he's going back to God. And so he chooses to serve. It is consistent with his character. Yes, almighty, but in that I still choose to serve. And so even our tagline is expecting the true Savior. What does this true Savior look like? Well, it's one that serves. In fact, Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, that says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, what was that? Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's Jesus who left all of his glory in heaven to put on flesh to become man, but that wasn't even the lowest that he went to be able to serve. He then became obedient to death on a cross. Jesus chose servanthood. He didn't exchange his godness, but again, he revealed who God is. He had all authority, and yet he chose servant leadership. In fact, his stated purpose when people came to ask him, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived with humility. He displayed a submitted willingness, even to the point of dying on a cross that we'll look at Friday. The great news is it doesn't end on Friday because Sunday's coming. Jesus, he loves you. Jesus, he chooses to serve even you. Jesus, he chose to die for you. And so for a few minutes, I simply want you to be able to sit in those truths I want you to maybe think about what that means for your life. Maybe there's some praying. Maybe there's some confessing. Maybe there's some thinking. Maybe there's just some sitting in his embrace because that's the kind of God that you have. Understand the God that we serve is listening. And if in this moment you're like, I need to pray with someone, that I would encourage you to go to the prayer room during this time. Please, this is going on. I want to pray with you. I don't even know what to do. And so, man, let this happen. But I want you to sit in that truth that the Messiah, the true Savior, is one who, yes, has all authority, but he chooses to love and serve. So spend time with him.
Jesus, we cannot thank you enough, God, for your sacrifice, for choosing to be a servant, God, for being an example for us, for doing what we cannot do on our own. When we just step back and think about that type of love, it really does put us in awe. It almost makes us speechless. Yet sometimes we're just so busy, we just kind of throw it to the side. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. God, I do pray that you would help us to live that way. God, again, not that it points back to us, but it points back to you. I'm thankful for the day that we get to be reunited with you. I am thankful that the things that we're looking at this week does not end on Friday, but we worship a risen Savior. So God, may your power continue to rule over this earth. May your power continue to live inside of us. And may we be faithful from our end. Lord, we love you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.